0: Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am here today with Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna.
1: Hey, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing pretty well. Uh, we have a fairly bleak conversation, uh, as, as we always do uh, today. But uh, before I get into what we're talking about today, let me just say that uh, I hope folks will check out our most recent episode, uh, which I think will be episode number 109, uh, that's a conversation we all had with the folks at William and the William and Mary Law School uh, about. Uh, they organized a conference around uh, the, their Journal of Social Justice. Uh, there's a lengthier name which I don't have off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> but the reason I want to really underline that is I think that that conversation gave us a great opportunity to really lay out in um, broad but also incisive terms, really most of our arguments about both kind of college sport and the exploitative nature of college sport, and also kind of what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast. So it was a great kind of moment to to regroup and, and think through everything that we've been working on. And it's funny because we've talked so much about these issues over the last couple of years, and yet I feel like there's a lot of novel stuff in that conversation as well. So even people who have kind of listened to much of what we've had to say, I think you might find some new things in that conversation, and I would encourage you to turn to it. And it will in turn provide, I think, a really useful form of context for this conversation. Because mm-hmm. today we have the great pleasure, again, of talking to one of my absolute favorite journalists. And like You know, you could throw these terms around, but really like someone who is a journalist and also who uh, I really admire and kind of agree with so much of what he says. And that is Joel Anderson of Slate. Um, and Joel joined us today to talk about Florida. And everything that is going so horribly wrong in Florida and may even be a kind of um, blueprint for more national issues in the United States around the the sort of moral panic, but also genuine material assault on higher education with respect to um, issues around critical race theory, trans rights, gender studies. Uh, And what we tried to ask Joel about is, what's the role of the athlete in that context, right? Of the athletic department. Cause we're talking about universities and how education operates. What is the role of the athletic sphere in pushing back against the political project against freedom and justice in the state of Florida?
1: Yeah, and I think that uh, just a few things I would add is that I mean, people who know me on Twitter know I've been like tweeting about Florida for a for a long time, and so when I saw um, when I saw that Joel had um, talked about Florida on an episode of Hang Up and Listen. It was the February 13th episode. Um, And I should say I saw that episode only because um, Professor Emilio Bruna, who is a UF uh, professor, basically sent the episode to me and was like, you should listen to this, because I've been asking for a while, like, is anybody talking about this? Is anybody as worried about it as I am with respect to sports? Um, Because we just haven't really been seeing people talk about it with respect to college athletics um and so thank you uh amelia amelia for sending that to me and just this is such a a really informative conversation an intense conversation as most of us as most of ours are and i think the other thing i would say is that we're recording this on march 8th so we're hoping to release this next week, but who knows what kinds of developments are going to occur in Florida or other states? So by the time that we release this, there may be additional kind of updates and additional developments that we simply were not able to talk about because they hadn't happened. Um, and especially since DeSantis has been really doing like a pummel effect of like legislation and statement after statement, it's just every single week there seems to be a new thing. So I'm almost expecting more to be done. Um, so just want to kind of give listeners some context. Before- for before diving into the rest of the episode.
0: Great. Thanks, Johanna. Um, So with that, we're going to we'll we'll leave you to the episode. But just remember, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the podcast, sharing with Mm -hmm. other people, you know, uh, sharing on social media, we would very much appreciate that. uh, And we hope you enjoy the conversation we had today with Joel Anderson.
1: And welcome to another episode of The End of Sport. Um, Nathan and I are here, and we are absolutely thrilled to have Joel Anderson on as a repeat guest for you all. Uh, Joel Anderson is a writer and podcaster at Slate, where he co-hosts the show Hang Up and Listen. He has also previously worked for ESPN, BuzzFeed, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as well as many other outlets. And he also played football for two years at TCU. Joel, thanks so much for your willingness to join us today.
2: Oh, Johanna, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Glad to be back.
1: Um, so first, I really want to, I've said this on Twitter, but I just wanted to um, share this with listeners and really thank you, Joel, for being one of the first and really the very few journalists who has been willing to ask this question about what athletes might be thinking about, what they should be thinking about with respect to Florida and recruiting in light of Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, and his truly fascist a- actions and what he's doing uh, down there. And as a fellow former Floridian and UF alum, I've long been wondering about this too. Because I, I, I do think athletes are wondering about this, even if a lot of them are maybe more concerned with just getting through the slog of practice and NIL and things like that. This is about their education and also about their safety, um, which is which has to be going on in the background. Um, but very little, if anything, has been written about the potential consequences of the racist and the homophobic and transphobic policies that are being passed in states such as Florida and Texas and Iowa. There has been some written about the anti-abortion stuff that came across last summer. But again, with these other uh, acts of legislation, there's been very little that's been written about it. So, I thought we'd start by laying some of the groundwork with what's been going on for listeners who may not be super up to date about it. Um, and this is what Joel, you did with your podcast episode on February 13th, which was titled How the Super Bowl Was Won. And we're going to link the episode in the show notes. And the segment where he adjusts it is near the end of the episode. Okay. So Joel, for as much as you feel comfortable doing, and I'm happy to kind of fill in, um, what do you see happening with going on in Florida? And again, you can get as kind of broad or specific as you want, and and then we'll fill in as needed.
2: Yeah, well, I, and, and and thanks for, um, you know, name checking that the after ball I did for hang up and listen. But um, I guess like just starting out more broadly, I'm just trying to remind myself that it's a proposal. It's not yet mm-hmm. law. So maybe someone will step up or step in and prevent it from going on the books, right? This doesn't have to be fated. Um, and But beyond that, and maybe I'm naive or ignorant or both, uh, I don't think the implications for the athletes can be divorced from those for students uh, right now. But, um, you know, I think more broadly, and you guys, you know, correct me if I'm getting it wrong here, um, I think part of the. The the proposed legislation would direct trustees to remove um, university majors and minors in, quote, critical race theory, gender studies or intersectionality or any derivative major or minor of those belief systems. And so I don't know. It's not clear whether any public Florida university has a critical race theory major or intersectionality minor. Um, But obviously, most of the institutions there offer gender studies um, as a major or minor of both. And, you know, look, as academics, you all know the bureaucracy is a fact of life. But, like, House Bill 999 would also inject politics into fairly mundane human resource matters, and they would put them in the hands of DeSantis partisans. So, like, the board of trustees now could hire faculty members. It could allow boards to delegate that task to the college president, but it would prohibit the president from, like, further delegating hiring to, like, faculty members. And so... While it does say that diversity programs are banned, um it doesn't include support for military veterans, Pell grant recipients, first generation college students, and so on and so forth so um you know, like there are a lot of people that aren't necessarily going to get caught up in this, but let's just say that you know you want to major in African American history um in one of these schools or you want just want to learn about it um that's going to be complicated um by this law, and you know I just You know, again, I I don't know where they're going to go from here um, with the law. I mean, you know, Florida is, you know, the Republicans own every branch of government there in the state. Um, So it's reasonable to assume that this law will get passed. But that doesn't mean that there isn't time to push back on like at least some pieces of it. But um, in terms of like how this would affect the athletes, like this is one time in which they have to be have some solidarity with the students and the faculty on these college campuses, because it will affect them all. It will all it will impact all of them, not necessarily in quite the same ways, but all of them will feel uh, the brunt of the, the impact of this law if it passes.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and and thank you for laying a lot of that out, um, and I, I really like your attention to kind of the specific details about, like, this is legislation, and it hasn't necessarily been passed, but also how it impacts athletes as athletes but also as students and that this is the, the real moment for solidarity. And, I mean, really the only thing that I would add, and, and, again, this is for people who are just simply haven't been staying up to date are not really aware of this, is, um, I mean, there's such a focus on – Um, what is taught in history and general education courses, which has been Mm -hmm. par for the course for the GOP. And I say the GOP, there has not been very much democratic resistance against this, which we can talk about that as well. But this whole idea that like teachers can or may not teach American history, quote unquote, as contrary to the creation of a new nation based on universal, universal principles stated in the declaration of independence. Um, Mm well, um, black people were enslaved or were not given rights in the Declaration of Independence, not to mention women were not given rights, right? So uh, it's just totally fundamentally inaccurate. And then um, general education courses, whenever applicable, are supposed to quote, promote the uh, philosophical underpinnings of Western civilization and include studies of this nation's historical documents, including the Constitution, Bill of Rights, federalist papers, et cetera. Right. So in, in some ways it's like very broad and mm-hmm. can be kind of manipulated. And then in other ways, it's like very, very specific focusing on documents that need to be taught, framings of the U S. Um, but as we said, you know, a lot of this is just frankly inaccurate, like to actually teach some of these courses would just to be, to do like bad pedagogy. Um, yeah. and yeah, so I just wanted to kind of note that.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. And j- Oh, go ahead, Nathan. I'm sorry. Well, i to jump in here, Joel, but I just wanted to refer to something that you kind of were both referencing, which I, I think is really important. This idea that um, we, we should do something we, we like to often do, which is let's actually accept the premise of college sport for a moment, right? The, the college mm-hmm. sport system, which is to say that education is the compensation that athletes receive in return for their athletic Mm -hmm. labor, right? If we accept that premise, and of course, that's problematic in a lot of ways, but if we accept it, then we have to take really seriously the actual educational, sorry, the actual educational experience that athletes get, right? While they're in higher education, Mm -hmm. because if they're getting a debased form of education in any way, they're really not getting the compensation that they're promised, Yep. And of course, one of the practices that occurs that, you know, we've talked a lot about, you've talked about, Joel, is, is something called academic clustering, right? And what academic clustering is, is that athletes tend to be steered towards particular majors, right? And the idea there being, well, STEM fields, for instance, because this typically is how it's thought of, STEM fields are too demanding. They're too onerous in terms of the time commitments for athletes. You got to attend labs, all that stuff. They're also perceived in this way as too hard, um, which is a whole other question. Um, And so because of this, we're going to start to steer athletes into what kind of courses? Well, and I've just been going over the interviews that Derek and I conducted with former college football players for our book project. And it's actually American studies courses, right, that athletes are often steered into. It's African-American right. studies courses that athletes are often steered into. They're being steered into exactly the sorts of classes that are being affected by this legislation, right? So if we now have a policy that says that they can't be taught an authentic narrative about American history, right? Because they can't be taught about slavery because that would be a standpoint, right? They're right? <laughs> saying slavery is bad <laughs> as a standpoint. And so they can't hear that. So they can't hear critical race theory, right? You can just see how they're going to be receiving, in return for the athletic work, a completely warped and corrupted education, right? And that affects athletes really directly.
2: Right. And, you know, I, I would also say this, too, and you all probably know this a little bit better than me, but this law is attempting to make something explicit that is sometimes just usually implicit in history classes. And I can't speak to, like, you know, necessarily what happens at the college level, but we know that, like, there's often a very sanitized version of these American histories that are taught at a lot of, you know, public institutions or whatever. That you know, they're not going to get down into the nitty gritty. And to the extent that I know a lot about Black history, slavery, um, you know, uh, the Reconstruction. Any of that sort of stuff. That's the sort of stuff that I had to take offline. I had to learn on my own or I learned at once I was actually out of school. But the idea that they would try to explicitly strip it out of the curriculum um, is even I mean, it, it's like they're not to, to your point, they th- they're. they're athletes are already getting sort of a limited education like they they're not getting to avail themselves of the entire buffet of courses at college right but they're even making it even more marginal now um where they're going to have to do even more work outside of the classroom to to get up to speed on this sort of stuff if they want to and i mean again i mean that's kind of tough i mean to self-educate yourself about history right like that's what these these colleges are here for and they're even taking away the ability for them to even get this like you know, very warped version of history uh, in their classrooms. Like, they even take, there's they, nothing that's going to be challenging whatsoever, so. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because so much of this, this bill is premise on the fact that, like, students are only getting their education in the classroom, or not only, but, like, that is the focus, and the premise is that, well, like, it's preventing them from getting the best possible education. And the reality is that most people are not getting the best education for all the reasons that you just discussed. So I'm I'm really glad that you, that you brought that up. Um, Thank you. And, and I thought, and I thought we would talk about what you had said in your episode where you presented listeners with, I thought it was like a very specific and a really nuanced argument for what athletes should be thinking about, how they might act in response to what the Florida government is proposing. And so could you explain that argument for us and if it's changed at all since then, right? Like we you record on one date, it gets released and then like things happen. So if it, if there's been any update, obviously we'd like to hear that as well.
2: Yeah, no, sure. So let me just actually place everybody so where this argument comes from. I lived in Florida for four years total and I covered high school and college sports there. And look, I've lived a lot of other places in that time, like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Georgia, New York, DC, and now California. So I've lived in at least four of the areas most talented bases for youth football talent, um, which would be, you know, Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, and California. And nowhere is the desperation or desire among the players and coaches more intense or visceral than it is in Florida, right? Like Florida, Florida high schools and Florida youth football, they don't necessarily have the money or resources of say Texas, but if you get out there and you cover them or you go to these like recruiting camps or you go to games or just wherever workouts, like it truly is a matter of survival for a lot of these kids who are often trying to get out of desperate circumstances. And that's across urban, suburban, or rural environments, right? So for not, for decades now, major college programs have preyed on that desperation to, to great success, particularly those schools in Florida. So I just was thinking about, I was like, man, you know, I realized I had not heard a lot about pushback from the Florida Democrats, and I'm sure there are some that are speaking up against this sort of stuff. But the thing that most interested me was that I have not heard any college football players or no college coaches to say, Hey man, this is kind of strange. Like I'm uncomfortable going to a state, I'm uncomfortable going to a school in a state that is, uh, that is (laughs) this, this determined to limit what kids there can learn in the classroom. Um, and this is, I mean, that's also like, we can take that to elementary schools where they're like taking out children's books on Roberto Clemente across the state, right? Um, but so these kids in this state are growing up in this thing. And we know that in Florida, that in, in all across the South, that like college football is an extremely important institution there. Like people pour m- tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into this. Like everybody sort of rallies around it. And I, I would even say like, I, w- I remember looking on on February 15th, um, with great interest and in disgust, the, the spectacle of Florida AD Scott Strickland and head coach Billy Napier and Florida State head coach um, Mike Norvell joining Ron DeSantis to celebrate the passage of a bill for uh, NIL, uh, which basically eliminates state regulation that get in the way of paying players for their NIL opportunities, right? And so to me, that says something that like Ron DeSantis recognizes the power of college football. He called all those guys there for a photo opportunity. And this is a political priority that he's made. So they're telling you right there, college football really matters to us in this state and we're gonna do something about it. Which to me, that makes it incumbent on these kids, their parents, their coaches, people that want to be allies to look at that dynamic and say, you know what, we've got a little bit of power here. And it doesn't require every black athlete in the state of Florida to say, I'm boycotting colleges here, don't want to go there, or I'm uncomfortable going here. But it would really take not that very many kids, man. You know, like if you were talking about maybe five, 10, a dozen, maybe a little bit more, just enough people with a national profile or 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 coaches to say you know what I'm not comfortable sending my kid to a state like that um I don't want I don't want to send my state, a kid to a state with, that is comfortable maligning uh trans athletes and students or um you know that that is you know the stop woke act and that people have a problem discussing the contributions that black americans have made to this country um I don't want to send my kid there and and to be honest like when I made that argument on hang up and listen, it's sort of from a tradition. There's a long tradition of black journalists across the South who have pressured black athletes and their coaches and their parents to not send their kids to schools that are outwardly hostile to them. Um, It's happened when I was growing up in Texas. I know that it's happened in Missouri. I know that it's happened in Louisiana. I know it's happened in Georgia. So that this is nothing new. I just, I'm just surprised that nobody else, at least I had not heard somebody bring up the idea that maybe we could do that again. Like maybe we can, we can make Ron DeSantis and these coaches uncomfortable enough that they have to talk about it in public. And that's something that they don't want to do. And I think just even that would be enough to sort of change the narrative down there.
0: Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. It's just to, to add to and extend what you're saying. Um, definitely not to contradict it in any way. Um, mm-hmm. It makes sense that these coaches are not the solution to this problem. For those who are like, you know, why are those coaches standing up there with Ron DeSantis? Well, they're standing up there because the entire system of college football Mm -hmm. is premised on plantation dynamics that benefit – white figures predominantly, right? So what when I, when I say mm-hmm. that, I mean, like statistically, we're talking about a disproportionate number of the beneficiaries of college football specifically are white folks. Whether we're talking about university presidents, athletic directors, exactly. athletic department staff, coaches, yep. if we're talking about members of the sports media complex, right? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. talking in all of these categories, these are disproportionately white populations. And then the revenue mm-hmm. being driven by college football is in these power five schools, which I think you're, you're gesturing to, Joel, are, Predominantly white institutions, obviously, and that means that they right. have really low numbers of black students overall. Again, often disproportionately low numbers of black students, and yet when it comes right. to athletes, we have disproportionately, vastly, disproportionately high numbers of black athletes producing essentially right this kind of interracial. Uh, sorry, this this um, this ra- uh, racial transfer of wealth right from black mm-hmm. athletes to all these white figures in the sport. And this is why we can talk in a very cut and dry way. Like there, there are all sorts of more complicated ways we can talk about plantation dynamics in terms of the experiences that students might have in these white spaces, that black students might have in these white spaces. But when it comes to the economics of the sport, it's a racial transfer of wealth, right? That the entire thing mm-hmm. is premised on. So of course these coaches are gonna stand up there with Ron DeSantos in an explicitly white supremacist project. There's a logic that aligns there. Of course. That's what mm-hmm. I'm trying to get at. So I can see why you're saying, you're not saying we expect that those coaches are going to do something about no. it. It's got to come from the athletes themselves. The challenge with that, and again, I don't think this is, this is not something that, you, that speaks against what you're saying, but I just want to kind of add this as further context. that This then raises sort of the challenge that exists in college sport generally, which is that the mm-hmm. system is saturated by these coercive dynamics, right? Which is mm-hmm. to say that athletes are unfortunately beholden to their coaches for opportunities, right? They're beholden for playing time that will showcase themselves so they have the chance to get to the pros. Now, if they want to have NIL opportunities, they're also going to need playing time, right? Because there's no reason they're going to get sponsored if they're not excelling in the sport. There's not like there's money floating out there for everybody. And so it becomes a very fraught thing for the athlete to speak up in that space because it jeopardizes... An opportunity that might be, as you've described, really precious to them and their family to have that chance to perform at that Florida school. Um, I, I just want to kind of add that context. I'm not trying to say I, I think you're right yeah. that yeah. like I, I, we're we're always pushing for, we're pushing for unionization we're pushing for all these things like, we want to see activism like that in organization, right. but it is hard.
2: Yeah, well, you know, and I, you know, and I, it, it is tough, right? Because I, and I appreciate what you said there, because we do ask a lot of, not only athletes, but we ask a lot of Black people in circumstances like this to forego opportunities to put themselves uh, in the fire, in, in, in the crossfire, so to speak, um, when when incidents like this happen. And I, I, the thing is, I know that it's very difficult. There's a lot of kids that grow up in in Tampa that dream of playing for the University of Florida, and I'm not asking every kid. To forego these opportunities, but I do think a few. Like I mean, look, Cormani McLean, one of the top three athletes in this class. He's from Florida. He's from Lakeland, Florida, which is between Orlando and Tampa. He's going to the University of Colorado. If that guy had said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to Colorado, but I I didn't want to go to Florida because you know the governor is racist. Like you just, say, he didn't even have to be that complicated. He could just say it just like that. Yeah, that would be something that people that would draw people's attention, right? Um. And so that's the thing. And, and, and as far as the coaches, um, I, I would say this. So in the past, and you, and you guys remember like that for, for years, for decades, people talked about like the Confederate flag flying on the state capitals and Su- South Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi. And for years, you know, um, people were like, man, how could you go play at a place like Mississippi? And it just kind of got, under, you know, people just kind of dealt with it. But, when they reached a critical mass a few years ago um, after the George Floyd death and, you know, we had this supposed, you know, reckoning, racial reckoning in America. Um, it was guys like Lane and Mike Leach, who are by no means, you know, like progressive political heroes who lined up with players to say, hey, you know what? Maybe it's time to get that Confederate flag down. And you know what they did? They took that thing down, man. They took it out of the flag. That's Mississippi. So they have an awful lot of they're, they're still those coaches still. If if they they can use their power when they want to. Um, And the thing is, is that we should ask them, well, why aren't you using it right now? Then like there needs to be somebody in those press conferences to say, hey, look, Steve Spurrier for years when he was in South Carolina was like, man, I think this is embarrassing. It's hard for us to recruit like we should take it down. And eventually they took it down after the shooting, the, the mass shooting at Mother Emanuel in Charleston in 2016 these coaches have the ability and they have the ear and they have a tremendous platform and they just choose not to use it. And the thing is, if they're not going to use it, fine, but somebody should ask them why.
0: Oh, Joe, that's, no, I'm so glad you made that point because it's true. We make this big ask of college athletes and and we're making, we literally are making an ask of college athletes right now Mm -hmm. in this conversation. But like, why aren't we making an ask also of these journalists who have the Mm job, the literal job of holding these figures accountable day in and day out. And it boggles my mind. These scandals will arise periodically. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no one is sitting in a press conference. They have access. They have a press conference. They, They have the potential for a national story. Why aren't you just asking questions in these press conferences and forcing coaches to go on the record and make themselves accountable. Some people like Dabo Sweeney aren't gonna care, right? I mean, he's like really comfortable saying the most outlandish <laughs> things you can possibly imagine and like standing by them. But I think you're probably right that there are a lot of coaches out there that don't really wanna be the story of the day in that sense. And by mm-hmm. being put in the position of having to speak about it, um, it, it, it might produce some kind of politi- um, you know more progressive politics. So yeah, that, that's a great observation.
2: Yeah, no. And I think in college, man, you know, I get it. Like, I covered college football for a few years at ESPN. Like, access is increasingly being taken away from reporters. And, like, reporters are unfortunately trying to be protective of the access with these college coaches and these college programs because they can get taken away really easily. But, like— I think that if you made this into a story and, you know, uh, let's just say Billy Napier acted up at a press conference and got upset or unsettled or had a bad answer. Like if he stripped your your access for that, I don't think your bosses would be too mad about that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Um, and, and, and the last thing I'll just say is that, you know, we've said this about white coaches. Um, I Also, like I'm just a little disappointed from some of the black coaches. And I know that they have their opportunities are much more tenuous. You know, they're dealing with a different sort of circumstances than other coaches. But I look at a guy like Deion Sanders, man. That guy's everywhere. He talks to everybody. He has a lot of power. He has a lot of attention right now. You also know he's from Fort Myers, Florida. Mm. He played at Florida State. One of the best, of most prominent products that have ever come out of Florida. He's not afraid of anything. He'll say anything about anywhere, anytime in Colorado. we pretty much defend him. Why hasn't he said something about this? I don't get it. Um, somebody should ask him why he hasn't said anything about it either.
0: Do you think, just as one more follow-up, because this, this is, in my, my own mind, like, this is not, like, any kind of fully reasoned um, question, but just, like, as a sort of, um, just a meditation, like, it strikes me that, Everyone involved in college sports, not because college sports is unique in this sense, but just because it's high performance sport and high performance sport (laughs) requires such kind of absolute and total investment uh, of Mm -hmm. time and energy and everything else. Right. Is is there, to a certain extent, part of the answer here, just folks are so caught up in the world of their training and their day-to-day lives that they literally don't know what's going on in the world.
2: Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I remember being in college, and people will ask, I, like, "There's whole years that I don't remember uh, anything other than being in a weight <laughs> yeah. room or in a practice field." You know what I mean? And I was woefully ignorant of the world while I was at college, even though I was going to class. Like, you know, if you're playing football, you don't have a lot of time, I and mean, your day, your day is basically spoken for from like five thirty to nine o'clock at night. Um, and so, a lot of the athletes don't have the opportunity. But that's where the parents, the youth coaches, the the black high school coaches, the media and the state, that's where they come in and they can hey tell these kids, hey, look, do you know what's going on in Florida? What do you think about that? Or ask these coaches or whatever. Like that's where the adults have the opportunity to inform these kids, the people that you would hope have a problem with what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. Um You know, they would know that and bring it to the attention of those people because, you know, these kids, they're not making decisions by themselves usually either. Like there's usually a whole group of people along with them when they make a decision where they're going to go to school or if they're going to transfer or whatever. And so those people, I'm looking at them and saying, hey, man, why are you not in these kids ear about what's going on? Because even like even if it's not about football, like, do you really want to be in a state where, where this sort of stuff is going on? Like, is that would you feel comfortable like that? I don't know
1: yeah, and I mean, I think what I appreciated about um kind of what you said on your your podcast was like you were speak you were speaking specifically to like to re, um athletes who are being recruited, right? so athlete prospective mm-hmm. athletes in terms of where mm-hmm. they were trying to figure out. Where they were going to go and mm-hmm. potentially transfer um, athletes as well, and so you know that is the moment where they are thinking about all of the various uh, factors that go into which school they're going to go to, as opposed to athletes who are like in the throes yeah. of you know five thirty a.m. to nine p.m. practice class, you know weight weightlifting, tutors, yeah. whatever. Um, and you know I think I think some I, I think some other things I wanted to point out too right is if we think about like athletes and other sports um Mm -hmm. right there was the the usc la the ucla gymnast who i think it was last year Mm -hmm. um the way that they like spoke out against how their athletic director and their coach were like really mishandling reports of racism from teammates Mm -hmm. and they straight up went on twitter Mm -hmm. and were like tweeting at their athletic director that were like you never answered my Mm -hmm. email like you never answered my report of this racist incident why aren't you dealing?" with this and I think there's obviously different cultures and different sports and women's gymnastics has been in the throes of like athlete activism and anti-abuse for a really long time. I mean coming up on almost a decade because of the Larry Nassar stuff so I think that is a unique context but I think again this kind of like Fear that athletes have about, like, this domino effect that if they were to start, you know, asking their athletic directors, if they were to start kind of testing the waters and stuff like that on Twitter or on podcasts and TikTok or whatever, right, that there is perhaps a little bit more of a domino effect because of the fact that they could become professional or not, right, based on kind of what they say. But I, I do think... I, I How do I say? I do think there are moments where athletes could at least be yep. asking these questions, whether it mm-hmm. is, like, a short TikTok video, right? I, I yep. think... And and the other thing is since um since this legislation was proposed, and especially since the AP, the the what Desantis said about the AP African American History course, there have been really major protests yep. on all kinds of campuses that are going on. And I would be curious to what extent athletes are participating in this. I have no idea, and I've seen nothing about it. It doesn't mean they're not happening, but I I'd be really curious to what extent are athletes aware of what's going on? To what extent are protests? Are students bringing the protests to the athletic department right are they standing outside of the buildings are they using the stadium right how are they kind of making uh, making use of like sports spaces and potentially trying to reach out to athletes that would be kind of another question that I have for people
2: yeah no absolutely and look I mean football is very conservative man and everybody that is involved in that in that that project um, they're great at siloing athletes like isolating them from the rest of their student the rest of the students and telling them no distractions, which is very broad and intentionally. So, so that a coach can just say something I don't like becomes a distraction. And so you can tell the, the kid to stop doing that. And there's not a lot of recourse for them. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of what Nathan was also saying a little bit earlier about it to basically get, they're trying to get all these kids going in the same direction. And that there's a, there's a lot of potential penalty for speaking up against these coaches. Um, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I really do think that if, I don't know if it's a unionization, I don't know whatever it is, athletes have more power than they realize. And we thought about that during 2020, Mm -hmm. When all these athletes were speaking up in the middle of the pandemic. Now, the only disappointing thing about that is that everybody got back and they started playing and then the movement kind of passed by. But like there was a moment of realization where athletes said, hey, we've got access to social media. People will listen to us. Like if we coordinate with each other, like maybe we can make something amazing happen. Um, And that's there's still potential for that. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, for sure. And kind of one thing I wanted to go back to was you mentioned the the NIL legislation and like the photo op and I I really encourage people to look at that picture mm-hmm. because it is such a propaganda piece. Like literally like that's exactly what it was planned for. Even if you look at the athletes mm-hmm. that the athletic directors and the coaches brought there. I mean, in UF, I think out of all think I think all of the um, most of the athletes were white athletes. There may have been mm-hmm. one or two who are athletes of color from UF. There were no female athletes of color from UF. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I, it's just like so interesting when we think about like how white supremacy is structuring so much of this and racial capitalism. It just this was such a propaganda piece yep. that was meant to kind of mollify athletes. And if you look at the legislation, like it's not just a symbolism of the picture. The legislation was presented to quote unquote remove restrictions on, on name, image, likeness that would allow athletic administrators to be more involved in helping athletes navigate NIL, Mm -hmm. which I think could be a really good thing because NIL is so Mm -hmm. complicated that a lot of athletes I think just don't do it. Um, But then what it also does is also removes any liability from coaches in the event that an athlete's NIL like prospects are negatively impacted as a result of a coach's decision. At least that's from what I understand of it. And I find that like really problematic that basically like a coach could choose to retaliate against Mm -hmm. an athlete as a result for any kind of activism, which would could, I guess it wouldn't have to, but it could like negatively impact their NIL prospects. Right. So I think it just kind of shows, again, the kind of insidious nature of this legislation of what they're doing and how, again, it like really coerces athletes to essentially just be quiet.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it involves coaches. I mean, like, I think you're absolutely right, Johanna, that like, yeah, these athletes do need somebody to help them navigate NIL because it is sort of wide open. It's a very new thing um, and not a lot of people have experience in it. And so maybe a athlete doesn't know how to avail themselves of opportunities or maybe they're overwhelmed with opportunities and people need to, some help figuring out which is real and which is fake. Right. Um, but. Um, involving athletic administrators, people who are already not inclined to give these athletes money, because again, we're not talking about the money that they really, the pot of money that they really uh, deserve. You know, the TV revenue, the bil- the billions of dollars that they generate there, like that pot of money. They're already not involved in that, and it's saying to athletic administrators, "Oh, we can come help you here." Well, how, when have they ever tried to help these kids get paid? You know, what I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Like, they've never been on their side. They've never, <laughs> they've never been trying to like do anything that would help them to. Um, Uh, 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 maximize their opportunities outside of the athletic facility. So I'm a little bit wary of that. Um, But yeah, I mean, anything that Ron DeSantis, Scott Strickland... Mike Norvell and Billy Napier are all about. I would be extremely suspicious if I was an athlete about why they're so happy about it, because you know that they don't actually care about the welfare of these athletes or their futures or their financial security. So um, it's something to definitely be aware of. It, it may be great for recruiting, so to speak, but it may not be a great deal for the athletes.
0: Yeah, and there's another party we could consider here. Like, we've talked a little bit about, you know, we've talked about coaches, we've talked about the athletes, we've talked about members of the media. The other piece that are really directly implicated here, and we don't, I think, often focus on enough, are athletic departments themselves more broadly conceived, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, in in research I was just doing for the book, I I, I kind of, I literally went to the department website of Ohio State University. And and I did that because uh, Ohio State is the highest revenue-producing athletic department currently in the most recent numbers that were on Sportico. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ohio State has... 591 paid employees of the athletic department. Uh, Man, 500, yeah. Can you imagine? 591 people. And all of yeah. those people are employed precisely because college athletes are producing commodity spectacle, right? And they wouldn't be right. on the payroll. they, they would, Those nope. jobs wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the unpaid work of college athletes because this is a supposedly nonprofit system. So the money has to go somewhere and it goes to these folks. And given mm-hmm. that, again, the compensation for athletes comes in the form of this education and this is compromising their education. You know, I think it really behooves folks who have these positions in the athletic department and they come in all different forms, right? They're like associate athletic director, there's communication staff, mm-hmm. there's athle- uh, yep. there's academic coordinators. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's also the coaching staffs. The coaching staffs are included amongst that, but you wouldn't be paying all these coaches if you were paying the athletes, right? So uh, I think it's re- very relevant to include the coaching staff. But anyway, there are a lot of folks who don't have the same kinds of investment, I'm trying to say, maybe in the white supremacist project as like a head men's football coach does, right? There are people who are still working in these departments. They have relationships with these young people. Um, okay. And I mean, you know, based on my time at Duke, what I experienced coming from some of those folks, this is not to, to paint them all with the same brush because I know there are a lot of different types of people working in those departments with a lot of different types of views and some of them really care about the athletes and hate the dynamics of college sport, right? And would really do almost anything for the athletes. I want to acknowledge that. But there are other okay. people who are totally carrying water for the sort of the yep. larger athletic department project. So when we were at Duke, I think I've told this story before, but like we had a faculty meeting where the athletic department came Came in and they talked to us about the experiences of working with college athletes, right? And what they were trying to sell the department, I mean, they were unlucky that I was there that day because I was really pushing back on this project to my fellow writing instructors. Um, But they were trying to tell us it's an issue of athlete engagement athletes are a problem for you as teachers. That's how they pitched it to us Mm. at Duke, right? They're a problem Mm. for you as teachers because they don't want to try hard enough at school. And that makes it hard in your classes because what do you do with these recalcitrant students who don't want to do the work? Absolutely. They called it athlete engagement. That was their code word for it. And that was how they framed it. So that's what I was pushing back against. But I'm just saying like, those sorts of folks, you know, they're complicit in Mm -hmm. this project right now, they have their positions because they're supposed to be working for college athletes. And I do think that we should be holding them accountable for it.
2: Oh, no, absolutely. And Nathan, I mean, yeah, I I just remember, you know, you know, and when I was in college myself and covering them, I mean, man, you know, the thing that I think about athletic departments and you talked about like the tremendous explosion and all these, you know, associated uh, athletic directors and whatever else is that patronage and nepotism helps to fill out a lot of those, (laughs) those jobs. And so we're talking about people that we're talking about people that are related to the coaches, related to the athletic director. This person is, you know, the son of somebody that donated a lot of money. So you're not often talking about a lot of people that are going there to rock the boat. You know, you're talking about a lot of people there that are just happy to be on part of the gravy train. And so, um, As much as you would like for these people to be at the front and looking out and keeping the athletes interest at the forefront here, there's no there's nothing in it for them. They have no incentive to because all their money, all their money and their position itself is likely um, as a result of, you know, their connections and their relationships with the people that are already in power. Um, I remember a few years ago when I was at ESPN and I think I asked out loud on Twitter, I was just like hey man, have you ever heard of a black sports information director in college? And it actually got the attention of like the the national organization of sports information directors. And they reached out to me and they wanted to talk to me about how to improve their numbers. And I'm like, that's just absurd. Like, you know how to do it. Just hire people. Also, I mean, college athletics have hundreds of former college athletes running around still on campus near in their college towns or whatever you could hire those people to do those jobs I mean you they funnel those kids into communication majors all the time right so that that's something they presumably would be under their purview they could they could groom them to take those sort of jobs or you know prepare them to to step up when they graduate that could be a professional opportunity that they could grow into but they don't want to do it so um I've always it's just weird because you're right um They think that there's sort of an invisible force within college sports and they take up a lot of money and a lot of space, but nobody really makes any. There's not a lot of expectations out of them to do anything. They're just sort of, you know, keeping the ship, keeping the train on its tracks. Um, But, yeah, I I would I would love if there would be a little bit more activism or they we we held them more accountable. But the way that they tend to get in there, I just think that that's just not, you know, I would maybe it's not realistic or maybe I'm just being a little too fatalist. I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I was thinking, um, since we're sharing anecdotes here, uh, when I was at UF um, and my ex worked for the athletic department, he mm. headed up the uh, the tutoring program. Like he was mm. the one who would like put everything on a spreadsheet when athletes would like request an appointment and he would match people up with, with tutors and he, he tutored a lot himself. And one of the programs they were highlighting at the time that they were developing was basically like a, what I know now is a surveillance program. It was basically because like mm. this... Like we're gonna, we need to address this issue of like athletes not going to class. So they would pay tutors yeah. to go to class, to go to the students' classes, to make sure the athletes were yeah. going. Yeah. And at the time, just being like ignorant and not thinking about it, I was like, oh, that's like interesting, and you know. I I, I kind of saw it as like something that would be helpful and then it's the last couple of years I'm like oh my god they were paying who were largely grad students who were impoverished themselves so basically paying them like whatever 16-18 bucks an hour to basically surveil college mm-hmm. athletes in class and I just thought like now of oh. course I just think of it and it's like so insidious but at the time I just oh. didn't think about it but I mean that's money that the right that they're taking from athletes pay to do that or it's, not even paying athletes but yeah.
2: It's so weird yeah I would like to know I wonder are they paying a new group of people to do that because when i was in school especially if you had eight o'clock class it would be an assistant coaches like your position coach might walk past your classroom and look in to see if you were in there so this has been going on even since when i was in school but Uh you're probably right they probably have like you know assistant coaches make six figures now and you know over a million dollars some of them if they're coordinators they're probably too rich and too (laughs) they 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 probably consider that beneath them now, so they had to hire a whole new workforce to do that sort of work now. I bet. So yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. a lot
0: of these schools I'm have surveillance to... technologies they're using for it now. Even as like, like you know, what I mean, like they no, they, they track saying. their cell phones and so forth. There's like, terrible man. Yeah, <laughs> terrible, yeah. Man. yeah. yeah it's, it's, no, it's it's really brutal. And and by the way, I mean, this is another one of my hobby horses, but like what mm. what this means is that you also end up. It kind of this circles also us back around to what we we started with, with just the fact that there's this sort of academic athletic question, right, and how these things are all connected to each other. Well, what you end up is in situations where athletes are being surveilled for their presence in academic spaces. And sometimes that mm-hmm. means that the athletic side is coming to check up on athletes mm-hmm. with the academic mm-hmm. staff, right, with faculty members, right? And it also means like if if this kind of surveillance, even if it's happening through technology, is happening in faculty members' classes, that means they are complicit in some way, right? Because they're allowing this mm-hmm. technology to be used in their classes. They can pretend right. that they can wipe their hands of it or whatever. But the bottom line is, you actually have a significant amount of uh, you have a significant amount of power as a faculty member at these institutions, especially if you're tenured. I'm not talking about contingent faculty. We can get into the more complicated mm-hmm. versions. But if you are a tenured faculty member at most R1 institutions in the United States, which are the institutions of the Power Five conferences, right? You have a mm-hmm. lot of agency in that context. You actually have among the most agency of anyone we've talked about today, right, in terms of mm-hmm. what you can choose to do day to day. And yet instead, what faculty members are doing is allowing for the athletic department to surveil yep. and regulate their students and subject them to corporal punishment. For not mm. meeting academic obligations, because that's what happens, right? You make them run yeah. until they're sick. You make them do this. You make them do that. Because mm-hmm. I just, I was just reading again another one of these interviews I was just covering. They were forced to clean the locker, the weight room, for a week if they were late Man. for class, right? Like that was that was the punishment. So demeaning and infantilizing, right? But again, the the faculty are complicit in that, right? Like, oh yeah. So we need to, as faculty members you're saying this now. We in a really kind of capacious sense. We need to understand college athletes as our students who we should be looking out for, and we shouldn't be thinking of them as an engagement problem. We should be thinking of them as students who we have a responsibility to, and that response, instead of thinking, letting the athletic department um, infringe upon our turf in the classroom, we should be trying to infringe on their turf as far as I'm concerned, right? On those fields and make sure that they're being treated fairly. And that means standing up beside them when it comes to these questions around justice on campuses, because that's the answer to all of our questions today. It is grad students and college athletes and contingent faculty members and tenured faculty members, right? All of these groups actually have really common interests. On campus, they mm-hmm. have different types of statuses without question. Athletes very often will not want to besmirch themselves. Sorry, sorry. Faculty members will not want mm-hmm. to besmirch themselves by putting themselves mm-hmm. next to these other groups because they see themselves as above. But we're not. We're mm-hmm. all paid workers at these institutions. We're all there as part of a pedagogical project, really, fundamentally. We should be that should, even on the athletic Mm -hmm. fields, right? There's supposed to be a pedagogical aspect to what's going on. That's why it's putative amateurism because you're learning these skills that will help you professionally, ostensibly, right? And Uh, so we need to work hand in hand.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I just remember when I was in school too, it's funny you mentioned that, but if you miss class, they'd they'd get you up at five o'clock and you, I mean, they basically run you to death. Like you'd run up and down stadium stairs or anything like that. And, and, you know, when you're in a athlete in college, there's any number of reasons that you might miss class. You might be tired. You might be hurt. You might have, you know, uh, be exhausted. Um, And and athletes are looking for people on the academic side who will support them in any number of ways, whether it's mentorship, academic help. um, Just if you're if you're a black uh, athlete on a project, predominantly white campus, you may be looking towards the black faculty. It's just somebody that one of the few people on campus that looks like you. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, I mean, they do have a role to play in a lot of this. And I also would just like to say is kind of the, that 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 surveillance apparatus it, it it just needs to be said, like it's not about academic performance; it's about academic eligibility, oh, yeah. which are just two vastly different things. Um, uh, so yeah, exactly. so like they, they don't they don't care they don't care what they don't care what your GPA is. They don't even really care if you graduate. They just want you to be
0: eligible. So they only care so. about your GPA if it affects their performance, their bonuses, which it does sometimes. A- absolutely, <laughs> I, absolutely, like, absolutely. Other students miss class, right? Let me just, say, as a university right. teacher, let me tell you, yep. my students miss yep. class all the time, and you know what? Yep. They're adults, and they're are allowed to miss class and the way we deal with it in higher education, unlike in high school is, you know what? It's harder to do well in my class if you choose to miss class, Mm -hmm. but you get to make that choice. You don't have to run stadium steps because you didn't come to my sociology class, right? And it would be absurd to suggest that you should. And it's just as absurd for athletes.
2: Right. And I'm just I'm just thinking about the people that are enforcing this academic, you know, <laughs> requirements. I'm like, I, I didn't I didn't get coached by a whole hell of a lot of like geniuses and, uh, you know, like <laughs> academic stars and college football. So it's like the idea that these people are the ones that are trying to push you to go to class. is just sort of absurd. But anyway, yeah, absolutely. Nathan.
1: Yeah. So one thing I wanted to go back to, we mentioned <laughs> it kind of briefly, but I like <laughs> part of your kind of argument um, on your show was that you talked specifically about like HBCUs and kind of how they occupy like a bit of a unique place. So could you elaborate on kind of like what athletes thinking about HBCUs in Florida and other places, like what might they be thinking? Because I do think it's important to kind of note that they are not the same as like an FSU and a UF and places like that.
2: Yeah, sure. Like I, you know, so I think Florida has four HBCUs in the state, um, which is Florida A&M, Bethune, Cookman. And I think the smaller ones are like Florida Memorial University and Edward Waters. Right. Um, and I think of them as fundamentally different from the UCFs, the USFs, the Florida States, the Florida, a- uh, uh, Florida Atlantic, or whatever. Um, HBCUs are already facing an uphill climb. And if, black athletes must choose somewhere to play in Florida uh, if they don't want to be too far away from home. Um, if I think, still think it would be powerful if, you know, the handful of athletes I'm talking about say, hey, look, I'm going to go to Florida A&M because of this, or I'm going to go to Bethune Cookman because I feel like it's a much more secure environment. Even if I can't control what the, the school is allowed to teach, those institutions have a fundamentally different place. So, I, I don't I don't want to see HBCUs are already facing a steep uphill climb um in this environment. And so I don't want to see them hurt any more than they already have been. But the the, the flip side of that though that I think about is that DeSantis and Fourler Republicans would likely punish those HBCUs even further. If they if, if they stood to benefit in any real way from athletes avoiding Florida or Florida State, they would, you know, try to cut off, you know, funding or adjust the board of trustees or whatever. So I understand that, like, they're sort of going to bind, too. But if yeah. if, if these athletes cannot – if they can just not bear to leave their home state or they've always wanted to be a Florida A&M Rattler, fine, go ahead, do it, or whatever. I, it's, I, yeah, I just think of them as fundamentally different from UF and Florida State.
1: Yeah, no, totally agree. That's why, yeah, and I, I think, too, um, I want to say there's some lawsuit pending, I think. Mm-hmm. It's maybe a couple um, – a couple HBCUs, I don't know if it's in Florida and another state who are making the argument um, that basically the state legislature has like, underfunded them to a disproportionate degree compared to like predominantly white schools and i think it's in florida and i meant to look it up before the episode mm-hmm. but you're right and just fighting so many battles just i mean and i and i and i would imagine too that they are might also be targeted in yeah. a specific way through this legislation but i just haven't actually seen that much written about it specifically
2: yeah 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 absolutely i mean the thing is is that i mean i think HBCUs is always a sort of under that right because even yeah. though they fund they they have a fundamental different mission and they f- serve a fundamentally different constituency, they're still at the mercy of the state yeah. and uh, they won't be uh, excluded from that. So any high profile, like opportunity to capitalize on a boycott or whatever, it would likely come back and hurt them. Um, but I think we got to do something, right? We got to try right. something. So. Mm-hmm.
1: For sure. For sure. Yeah. And really kind of the last like major question that I have is sort of mm-hmm. like, I want us to kind of get at, like, what the purpose is of these laws. Like, what is the – like, what do you think is, like, the overall purpose with respect to athletics but also just society in general of, you know, banning – the African American um, AP history course, banning gender studies, um, requesting you know information about trans students who are receiving you know gender affirming care. So like, what is the purpose of all these things, and kind of how does that impact athletes? Like we talk about the educational part of it, but like, yeah, you know, what is the purpose? Like what kind maybe what kind of society is like DeSantis is the GOP like trying to create with this stuff? Do you think?
2: Man, that's a great question. I mean, I think more broadly, if I had to pick any one thing, if I had to boil it down, I think they're just trying to scare people into science and compliance. And for people that don't want to go along, they want them to leave. They'll, or they'll try to force them, you know, essentially what I'm asking is for athletes to say, well, you know what, Um, Florida isn't for me. We should go somewhere. And I I don't think that's tenable in the long term, right? Because Florida is a state. I mean, it's not that Republican of a state. You know, I was there when they had a. You know, I think I was there at one point in which it was feasible for a Democrat to win governor, right? Um, and so they want they want to. Um, I, I'm sorry, sorry. They, they they would like to reinforce their majority and reinforce the idea that they are in charge. And so they can also convince athletes that's got nothing to do with you. You can get paid on NIO. You can still play in the SEC. You're different and apart from these other wokesters uh, that want here to have, you know, AFAM studies in school like this. It won't affect you. You're still going to you're still going to have to take the classes you're going to have to take. But we can get you a Porsche or whatever. Or we can get you twenty five hundred dollars a month or whatever. So um, I think that's probably the bigger the The bigger project here, scaring people into believing that there's nothing that they can do. And you know what? To be honest, at least so far, it seems like they've convinced an awful lot of people there because there's not been a lot of pushback. Um, And so that's, you know, I, I don't I don't know where we go from here. I don't know what the resistance or what the opposition is cooking up mean um, like you said John I'd like there have been people at, at high schools and in other schools across the state that have held protest and have pushed back but um it wouldn't take much it only it, like it would only take like 15 black people in the state to make it really difficult for Ron DeSantis and make and make Billy Napier and Mike Norville reconsider their support of these guys. I don't think that they're as strong as they think they are and as strong as they want to be. And this is an opportunity for somebody to step in and say, hey, look, Florida belongs to us, too. And, you know, you're going to pay a political price in the short term, but in the long term, we're going to get our state back. Um, But as it is, I mean, you're right. I mean, reporters haven't asked any questions. Um, there's not like an organized opposition going on right now. So I think, you know, the 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 drive to keep people from saying much about it or to think that this is inevitable is kind of the hardest thing that people are having to fight against in Florida right now. And it doesn't have to be that way, I don't think. If you if you use South Carolina and Mississippi as a model, and of course, like those states, obviously they have their own regressive politics and politicians that they've got to deal with, and they're doing their own terrible stuff in their states. But there is a model we've seen that like boycotts can move people to action. Even in this SEC school like the University of Mizzou, their athletes, I went I covered a protest there in 2015 or 2016 where they they got their the, the school president deposed. Like he had to resign. You know, the head football coach ended at the end of the year, and this was over a protest over racist incidents on campus. So there is a model here. Um, people can do something about it. It doesn't have to be inevitable, um, but you just got to get over that fear, I guess.
0: Yeah. And, and by the way, I would characterize what happened in Mizzou not just a protest, that was a strike that those students yeah, that was engaged right. in. Um, yeah. And so it's a, that, that's probably the best model we've ever seen for the p- potential yeah. collective action power of athletes. Um, just to extend what Joel's saying, I, w- I would only add to answer Johanna's question the question of like, what is the project of DeSantis with these pieces of legislation and so forth? You know, honestly, mm-hmm. let's just, all you have to do is look at the things that are being outlawed. Because frankly, gender studies, uh, critical race theory, these things actually have the answer to the question embedded in them. There's a reason why they're being mm-hmm. banned. Because they are asking us to think critically about patriarchy. Because they are asking us to think critically about white supremacy and structural racism. Yes. Right? That, that's what these things are. So This is a very... Uh, explicit and l- rational political project, right? I want to be very clear about that. Like, it's it's deliberate. There's an understanding of the threat posed by uh, a feminist project, by an anti-racist project, right? And we can talk a lot about, and this would be a whole other conversation, the ways in which these things get diluted and watered down in EDI mm-hmm. processes, right? And they get appropriated by capitalism. And of course, I think we all agree on a lot of those things. So, I'm, but, but there's still an, an inherent threat, right? To really, mm-hmm. to, to having university spaces where people 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 teach very explicitly about something like white supremacy. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois tells us, you know, almost a century ago now... The civil war isn't over, in a sense, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you can really understand so much about U.S. politics by thinking about this as as the the civil war just continuously unfolding, right? And so when there are Mm -hmm. gains made by a progressive, which is to say, like, an abolitionist project, right, there is also a backlash that comes with it. And so 2020, which you talked a lot about, Joel— 2020 mm-hmm. is really meaningful in all this, right? Because although there was not that much or nearly enough or, or or a deserving amount of substance to emerge out of 2020, that incredible show of power... Right, um, people mm-hmm. in the streets—the biggest show of that kind of power in U.S. history. Right, that's a threat, and when that's accompanied by teaching that's occurring in classrooms and so forth, all of which I think is justified. Right, like critical race theory is just mm-hmm. telling the truth about American history. I'm not contradicting that, right. but you know, it's important to tell that history precisely because it is the history of constructing a white supremacist society, and so you need to know that history in order to un- unravel that society. And the the scary thing about it, as critical race theory beyond it being a moral panic, is that mm-hmm. it's de- deliberately pack it's history packaged with a politics. And the politics mm-hmm. is to challenge that white supremacy, right, in, in, in genuine material ways. And those material ways, well, that's scary, because now we're maybe talking about reparations, right? Now <sighs> we're talking yeah. about affirmative action. Now we're talking about things that are actually really threatening to all those people who have their nepotistic jobs in those athletic <laughs> departments, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of, it Absolutely. all kind of comes together in that sense so i i do think like we should be afraid of DeSantos precisely because this is a very rational project pushing back yeah. on things that i think we at least can agree like we care deeply about right are at the heart of our kind of politics and, and he is trying to fully wage war on our politics
2: absolutely yeah and i mean i just even to add on to that i think you're right all of that and it's i think Another part of the project is to make marginalized people feel isolated, weak, powerless, and marginalized, right? Um, They're stripping out all these books and courses and removing opposition, and they're saying, hey, you know, like the anti-trans panic, in a way. It's, we can do you like this, too, right? Like, it's not just those folks, like, you know, they're getting it right now. And that's why people, when we look at, you know, supporting our trans brothers and sisters, it's like, look— You see that this is the model for what they want to do to everybody else. Right. Anybody that might pose a threat to them or pose, you know, uh, a a defense against this conservative hegemony. So I don't know, man, Um, you know. You're right. It's a very rational project. It seems to be working. It's a model for a lot of other states that are copying. Um, and it's just really sad because higher education is supposed to be an escape route. It's an opportunity for people to learn about themselves and their history. And like you mentioned, the power of resistance. Um and they're not they're trying to they're trying to make people feel like oh there's nothing that you can do about it you are lonely you are powerless this is the way that it's going to be but it i mean i don't know if college kids are listening to this or whatever but it doesn't have to be this way like there is a model to get out of this so
0: yeah absolutely
1: for sure yeah, and I think just to kind of just to add, I mean, there's a couple things. This, as a scholar of Hungary, which mm-hmm. has gone down this path since 2010, mm-hmm. um, literally since I started grad school or 2009, 2010, like literally Florida is copying – like DeSantis is copying so many steps that Orban did over there. Yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to say this is just like a Euro-American project, right? Fascism is a global project. Mm-hmm. Brazil was on that path until recent elections, right? It's not just um, Europe and the U.S., but it is clearly like what you said about silence and compliance, Mm -hmm. right? If we can create these like silent and compliant workers, we can make them do anything, and we can exploit them however we want, and we can force them to do these jobs, and people can you know reap the reap the profits, reap the benefits. I mean, if we ban gender studies, right? And we ban CRT, yep. then people are not going to learn the tools to critique the system in their situation, right? They're not going to critique white supremacy, which is what both of you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um and also like Florida is the state with the highest per capita rate of lynchings. Like during mm-hmm. Jim Crow, like mm-hmm. I, I think we te- I think people tend to think Florida's like sunshines and beaches mm-hmm. and Disney. But like that's the pup the success of the public image of uh, the, the PR campaign over centuries. Mm-hmm. Um and so this is firmly rooted in Floridian history. It's not just about Texas. It's not just about South Carolina and Mississippi, although, of course, it's there, and these states are already trying to, like, build onto these things. I saw, I think, a Chronicle article about how North Carolina might be the next state to do this. Mm -hmm. I know Youngkin in Virginia, where I'm from, wants to do some of these things, although Mm -hmm. they have a stronger, like, Democrat um, kind of coalition there than Florida does. But it's just this whole idea of we're going to try to um, marginalize people, as you both said, as much as possible, and ice them and atomize them so that they are not able to work together and unionize and fight back. And I think that just, yeah. And, and I think within athletics, right, we already know the college sport is a plantation system, especially basketball in Florida. And that's why we have coaches that keep talking about the plantation, right? Mm-hmm. We had a coach like the other day talking about athletes in the plantation. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just not a stretch to like think of these like broader historical arguments. And I think, I think that's, that's what's going on there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're just trying to get us to accept things that w- that should not be un- that should be unacceptable. I mean, it saw like in F- in Arkansas, they just signed a law to roll back. Child labor protections, you know what I mean? Like, it's, like this, I mean, this is, I mean, this is all part of the same political project, and they just want us to accept things that we've not accepted in this country for two or three generations, um, and it's which is not a very long time. Like that, that's within the span of my parents' lifetimes, right? right, right. Um, so yeah, uh, Johanna, you're absolutely right, and I just, I don't. You know, again, I've, I'm, I'm glad you all have provided this platform here to talk about this sort of stuff, because I just haven't been hearing a lot about it out there. And that doesn't mean that other people are not talking about it. But I just think that people that cover this stuff, like they should get engaged on it real quick. So For sure. For
1: sure. Well, Joel, thanks so much for joining us today and working with our schedules. We so appreciate oh. kind of the work that you are doing, and this was just this was excellent. So, thanks so much for for talking with us today.
2: Oh, my pleasure for having me on. It's always fun. So, well, may, fun maybe maybe uh, maybe not be the right <laughs> word, but uh, it's always uh, informative and, 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 and a pleasure. So, anytime.